Take that for what it's worth. Well, let's turn our attention to the Word of God now. We are in the middle of a uh, series called Foundations. Actually, we're, uh, we're getting closer towards the end. And uh, as we have spent some time early on going through a statement of theology, we're now turning our attention to kind of walking through what we have in our church as we call the statement of faith and practice. And we call it faith and practice because there are still statements in there about believe. We've kind of been framing some things around about what we believe. We believe these things. Those are statements of faith. But then also practice because we're saying if this is what we believe, if this is where we come out on something, then this is what we do because of that. This is how we we shape our lives because of that. And today, as I alluded to earlier this morning, uh, today we have the subject before us of marriage and the home. It's actually two sections in your statement, if you are ever at all tracking along with what we're doing. It's two separate little statements there. I combine them because I think they fit together uh, and they make sense to kind of talk about together. And as I often do, and I don't know, maybe this is bothers you, but I, this is often where my heart is at when we begin. I, um, uh, is, is when we talk about things like that, there's always things that come out of this uh, that, that I sort of, I feel like I have to make sort of like like caveat kind of statements. And I want to say one this morning because I believe as I was sitting at my desk this week and, and preparing and, and praying through and, 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 and laying out these things, I recognize that this is a subject that, boy, it's pretty tough for us because there's all kinds of hurt and all kinds of pain and all kinds of dysfunction and all kinds of havoc that are being being wreaked or that's happening upon marriage and upon our homes and all kinds of things. By the way, I think what the things I'm going to say today, I think it'll come to light as to why that's true, why this seems to be one of the primary uh, battlegrounds that the enemy operates in. So this morning, as I, as I preach through this kind of thing, I'll be honest, this is, many of you know me probably well enough to know that, that, well, I'll just be blunt. I like when people like me. I don't like when people don't like me. I don't like saying things that hurt people because I, I realize that, like, well, I just don't like that. It doesn't make me feel good. I do it sometimes, by the way. Don't, don't, don't have false notions about me, but I don't like it. And I recognize that as we go through a subject like this morning, there, there can be things that come out, and if that's not the reality of your marriage or your home or things you've experienced in life, that it, it, it may feel like, ouch. A, I hope you can understand or hear my heart that that's not, I, I, that's, I'm not, this is, there's no condemnation in a message like this. B, I will not, and this is why I have to bring myself to this, I will not back away from teaching what I think should be taught, and that is God's ideal for what he has in mind for marriage and the home. Recognizing that very often the reality of a sin-filled world certainly in this area today, makes things ugly and hard and painful. And there's all kinds of exceptions. There's all kinds, and and just to, again, I'll just say this, this up front, I'll be honest. We tend to sort of spend a lot of time arguing or discussing or wrestling with the exceptions. In fact, I think we tend to spend far too much time making rules or guidelines based on the exceptions and not on where God wants it to be. So, I want to begin with the Word of God in what I believe He says about the subject of marriage and about our home. I'm going to put up the first statement. I divide it into two sections, which makes a lot of sense since I'm talking about marriage and the home. Two, state, or two sections. The first is about marriage, the second about home, and I think, as you'll see, that I think they're very connected together. 
We say in our statement that we believe in the permanence of marriage and its importance in God's word. And I think both of those are very important parts of where we're going to go today. We believe in its permanence and we believe in its importance, that God is concerned about it, that God has, cares about marriage, that this is not, and I'll say this, that this is not just a human institution or a, 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 a humanly uh, devised kind of thing to make us happy or to make us fulfilled or to make us have whatever. It's, this is not a human institution. This is something God is concerned with and is important to him. That's why we read about the word. In fact, we're going to read about it very early on in God's word. And we believe that God intends something for it, which is where the permanence thing comes in. So let's just jump in. Now, these are some verses that when, you, when we went through the statement of theology, we actually covered a lot of these verses I'm going to talk about today, at least at the beginning here, uh, because we talked about it when we talked about God creating man. So we had a section called man and what we believe about who man is and, and, and how we came about and, and all the stuff that God wants from us. So we're going to kind of cover some ground again. But let's start in Genesis chapter 1. I give you on the handout, if you, if you want to follow along with this, I give you every reference that I'm going to specifically over refer to and read, and I'd love to have you follow along and read out of your own Bible as I do that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Now, God is giving us a picture in Genesis chapter 1 of a high-level view of his creation. He goes day by day. On this day, he does this. On this day, he does this. On this day, he does this. And we come to day number 6, and he creates the living creatures that are on the earth. And as part of that, he creates humans. It says in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And verse 27 is the fulfillment of that. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And at first, the first statement out of the gate that we have to make about this is we again see an example of where God said, this is how I'd like it to be, and then God what happened? What happened? It was exactly how God said it was going to be, right? He said, I'd like to make man. I'd like to make him in our image. And so God made man in, our, in his image. And he made male and female in his image both. And then he said, by the way, I'd like these humans I'm going to create. I'd like to have them have dominion over the earth. So the very first charge he gave them, he said, be fruitful and multiply, go and, and, and take and subdue the earth. Now, that doesn't mean use it for your plaything, or that doesn't mean, like, use it wastefully. Remember, we already covered last week a whole session about stewardship, right? So the earth belongs to who? God, right? Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? Everything that's on it. So we are stewards of it. But he said, I'd like you to have dominion over it. I'd like you to subdue it over every creature, everything that, that, that moves around on the earth. I'd like you to have dominion over it. He created them male and female from the very beginning. He said, this is how it is. Now, when we move from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2, well, the first couple of verses of Genesis chapter 2 still go with chapter 1, actually. But what we move, what we do is we move from a high-level view of creation into sort of a zoomed-in view of specifically the sixth day of creation. Now, by the way, there are alternate theories out there about how this stuff works. I'm telling you the one I believe. The one that I think is represented best by the heart of all of Scripture is that we move. It's not, it's not a second creation account. It's not, it's not like two different things are happening. It's that we, on, on one hand, it's like when I first told you the story from like, you know, five miles away and told you kind of what it looks like from up here. And then I took you down on the ground and said, now this is really what happened. 
And he goes through, and he's again sort of describing how he created the animals. He, he made Adam. And you know how this goes, right? He makes Adam, and he brings, and why he does it this way, I don't know, because every other animal that he made, he made them male and female to start with. But he creates Adam, the man, and then he creates, has all the animals, and they all come before Adam, and he's trying to find some place, some, a helper suitable is the phrase that's used. He's trying to find somebody that fits with Adam. I believe, by the way, he did that to show us without a doubt that there's only one option. There's only one thing that fits. There's only one compatible thing. I believe that's, what, that's one of the driving reasons why God did it this way. You know, the animals, don't, they, they, they don't have to go through this. They don't think about this. God just made the male and female, and they, and, and, and it just, and it, they do their thing, right? That's, that's what happens. They don't have to be told or taught. But for us who are created in God's image, read that we have a soul, and read that God gave us choice. Again, we covered this when we went through the, the statement of theology. We have choice. So God said, I want to make sure that you understand that there is only one choice for the helper suitable, for the complement opposite, for the fulfillment of what I want to have happen. As for Adam, there was no helper suitable found for him, as you know that. And so if we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man, and the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And verse 24, we have it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Did you know on the sixth day of creation, I believe God created marriage and gave us the picture of what it's supposed to look like? A male and a female, and they shall leave. Now, at that point, of course, they could not. Did you ever think about this, by the way? Why did he say that they shall leave their father and mother? Because at that point, the two he was dealing with right in front of him didn't have father and mother, did they? So why did he say that? He said it for us for every other one after Adam and Eve to understand something about marriage. God said, I want the two of you to be something that is different from all the animals. I want you to know that you belong together. I want you to know there's a reason why there's a male and a female and you come together and you leave what you have before and you are joined together, that you become one flesh. We begin to get introduced to this idea that something unique happens when husband and wife come together. There's some unique joining that happens. Certainly we understand the physical part, and quite frankly, too often we've just, we just look only the physical part, but that's not the only thing that happens, is it? There's a union that goes beyond physical. It, it involves emotional kinds of, kind of intimacy and emotional kinds of oneness, and I would tell you it involves spiritual kinds of oneness. I, I kind of skipped mental, but you could say mental kinds of oneness. And God said... This is how I want it to look. I want man to leave his family. I want a woman to leave her family. And I want them to be joined together. And they shall become one flesh. Now as we continue through scripture, it's obvious to see that they had similar issues that we have today. That is to say they had sin in their lives. And they had all kinds of dysfunction. And they had all kinds of ways that it got all messed up and got all out of whack and got all kinds of stuff going on that ruined what God had intended. That doesn't change the fact that that's what God had intended, does it? 
we see this very thought, this very idea, this very, uh, the importance of marriage and the permanence of marriage, we see it reiterated in the New Testament. Let's go to Mark this time. I chose Mark. I could have read from this from a couple of Gospels. I chose Mark, as I like to do because we have kids in here that are quizzing and learning the, the, the Gospel of Mark this year. And so as many times as I possibly can, I like to make an effort to go into the Gospel that they're quizzing over so they hear words that are familiar to them. Mark chapter 10 one day Jesus was out and about, and the Pharisees, this is Mark chapter 10, verse 2, and the Pharisees came up, and they wanted to test him, and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They went right to a question that looked at this institution of marriage. And I want to tell you, they no doubt looked at it from the same way we do many times. They looked around and saw how, how devastating it had become in many people's lives, how, how defunct it was, how they struggled with it, how, how they messed it up all the time. Because they wanted to test him and trick him. It's not entirely outside of the realm of possibility that sometimes when we have the same discussions that really all we're interested in is tripping up someone else and getting them back into corners so that we can do what we want to do. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? He goes, says, go back and go, go see what, what you were told. And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And I suspect that they might have thought that they won this argument. Verse 5, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Ouch. Just stop for a little bit right there. Just, just stop for a moment. What does it feel like? What does it feel like when you know a rule very well? Let's just take some, let's just take some rule in your, in your family, your household, or, or some law of some kind that that you want to try to get around and, or you want to try to use to justify an action and to say, well, the law says I can do this. It's legal. I'm not doing anything illegal. And then the answer to that is, well, you know, that's only because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, we'd rather it not even be an issue. In other words, that's just what you really wanted, so we made this, this rule. For, that's not really what God wanted. Doesn't that kind of suck the life out of sometimes where we're at? I, this is a bit of a side, and I probably should be careful doing too much of this. This is not marriage-related at all. But back to what I've said at other times in, from up here, is I fear we spend far too much time, if you visualize God here in the center, and then somewhere out there is the boundary, whatever boundary we think we have, that if we cross that, we're, we're no longer right with God, which, by the way, is just totally the wrong way to look at it to start with. But we spend so much time facing the boundary and seeing how close I can get to it and what I can get away with and still be right with God. And the problem with that is God says your heart is already not in the right place if that's, if that's your posture. If you're this way trying to see how, how far away I can get from God and still be right with him, your heart's, you've, you've already, it, it's, yeah, you can say, well, here's the rule. Well, God, I haven't crossed this line yet, so here's the rule. And he can say, yes, but it's only because the hardest of your heart that's even there. Your heart should be inclined this way to how close you can get to him, to how much you can love him, how well you can represent him, how gladly you can follow him. You see, the rule is there, but it's just there because the hardest of your heart to stop you and say, listen, that really is, that's too much. That's the way Jesus answered them. He said, well, Moses said we could divorce. We can give him a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said, it's because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote you this commandment. And then he goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And he says... But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He goes right back to what we just read. He said, listen, yeah, you have this, this commandment that Moses allowed this to happen for you, but that's just because you, your heart was bent towards getting away with as much as you could. But that's not what God intended. That's not what God intended. In the beginning, he made a male and he made a female, and he said they should come together, and, he will, and the two will become one flesh. And then Jesus added, they're no longer two but one flesh, and what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is, by the way, where we get the line that we say at virtually every wedding that is ever performed. I wonder how much we actually mean it. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, now this is a little later, in the house the disciples asked him about it again because this pushed them a bit. They asked about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. He, he pointed out the fact that God intended this union to be a permanent union. And if it gets divided, that's what we call adultery. That's what we call being unfaithful. Now, I already told you, I gave you my caveat. And as you think about this in your own life and in the life of your family and the life of virtually everyone you know, you know that this kind of teaching is not real popular anymore. This kind of hard-nosed, legalistic, It's, not, not, it's not, not looked upon too well because the obvious evidence around us in our culture is that that just, seems like a, that just seems like too much to ask. You know, perhaps it's good for us to ask this question. When God inspired the book of Genesis about how he designed things to start with, and then he sent his son, and his son, of course, spoke for him and said this is what God had intended. Is, are they really just so hard-nosed sticklers that they really... I mean, marriage, Glenn, you said it. Marriage is hard. It's hard. It's difficult. There's a lot of struggles. There's a lot of dysfunction. There's a lot of people that, that botch it up. There's a lot of times I botch it up. There's a lot of times where I feel like I'm not getting out what I think I should be getting, perhaps. Is God really just sort of unfair and hard-nosed and says, I don't really care how it is for you, and that's what I want. You get married, you're stuck. Or could it be that God has a far greater intention and purpose for marriage to start with? Could it be that as with almost everything that we see in the Bible, that we see things in the physical realm, we see things happen in the physical realm, we see, we see evidence of things here, and Many, many times they are types or they are representations or they are, they are, they are a, a physical picture of what God really has to show us about something else. Could it be that marriage is the same thing, the same way? That in the end, much as I hate, this is a really bad message to preach after Valentine's Day, I'm sorry. Much as I hate to throw water on your fire, and say that, could it be that God is not so interested in meeting your needs and completing you and making you as a whole person so that you can have a spouse and just, that just fills your needs and, 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 and makes you whole and makes you go? Could it be that God is interested in something far different, actually, with a marriage? 
Could it be the picture he's trying to draw with a husband and wife? I mean, it's a really nice side benefit that it's fulfilling for us, that there's great joys in marriage, along with some of the heartache that comes, that there's great fulfillment, that it offsets a great deal of loneliness in us. But could it be that those are actually side benefits and not what God is really actually after? And could it be that when we begin to rethink what the purpose of our marriages are, that it might change how we feel about a God that says, I really intend that when I had made male and female and they leave their families and get joined together, that they should stay together. I think this is precisely what the Apostle Paul is talking about when you read in Ephesians chapter 5, and probably many of you are in the same place as I am when you read this, so this is not going to be news for us. But in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul has this, this uh, incredible little section of verses. You've probably heard them taught before. Maybe you don't like these verses. I'll just be very frank with you. Maybe you don't like these verses, but they're in the Bible, so I should read them for you this morning because they regard this subject. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, and he quotes the very same thing Jesus did, so I think he's in pretty good company. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However... Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I believe in this passage, Paul is aiming at taking our thoughts and our, our views of this thing called marriage and taking it to a higher or an alternate plane of reality. He's saying it's great. Husbands and wives together, there's all kinds of things we've got to work out. He actually gives some instruction on how to do that. But he says, really what I want you to know is that when you get married, when there's a husband and a wife, that God, while he's interested in your well-being, of course, always, because God loves you and cares for you as an individual. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He's interested in something far greater than that because God is also interested in continually promoting his glory and what he's doing in the world. He says, really, your marriage is a picture of Jesus and the church. It represents something far bigger than just what's happening between my wife and I. It's far more important than what's happening just between my wife and I. He says, husbands, you should love your wives, but not just because that's a great idea, although it is a great idea. Not just because that's like being nice to people, although it is being nice, and your wife will really appreciate that. But he says, you should love your wife because that's a picture to your wife and anyone else who's in your home and to the rest of the world that that is what Jesus is like. That Jesus did exactly that. That Jesus loved the church. He loved us. And he gave himself. He, he sacrificed. He poured himself out. He said, I will do anything. And he did anything. I will do anything so that they might be right with God. That, husbands, is the picture that you and I are trying to paint with our lives. 
And he looks at the wives, he said the very same thing. He says, listen, I'll just say this bluntly again. You, got, you know me, I like, to be, I like to be pretty blunt. I'm not just telling you that you should submit to your husband just because I don't like you, because I'm against women. I'm telling you this because you are supposed to represent what the church is supposed to be like to Jesus. And how can we ever convince a world that needs Jesus desperately that what the church is like and how the relationship works when we can't even work it out in our own relationships? It doesn't work that way. Again, this is terribly unromantic of me, and I'm really sorry. Kind of. But let's for a moment step outside of what I get out of marriage and say, what is God trying to portray with marriage in general? I mean, I think it's a good place for us to get really practical, right? I'm sorry to be, I don't want to be exclusionary, but I'm going to talk to married people for a little bit. Husbands, if you're here this morning, you're married, and you take a just real blunt, honest look at your life, can you lay your life and how you interact with your wife next to Jesus and say, yeah, I'm kind of like that guy and how he does things with the church? Would people look at your marriage and say, now I know what Jesus is like? I mean, I can do the opposite, right? Wives, if you're sitting here this morning and you take an honest look at your life, can you lay that next to the, how the Bible describes the church interacting with its Savior, Jesus Christ, and say, yeah, that's the picture I'm portraying. When people look at me, they see the church. They see how the church operates with Jesus. Quite frankly, if you're not married, you're thinking about it someday, that would be one of the primary questions I would ask you in preparation for that. Are you ready to show that picture, whether you're, if you're male, that you're Jesus, and whether you're, if you're female, that you're the church with your marriage? Not that I'm not worried about it, but I'm far less worried about you being compatible with someone, or getting along great, or having a lot of great times when you're together, or really meeting each other's needs. I'm far more concerned about the fact that God says your marriage portrays something much greater than just two people. Before I move on, let me make this statement yet. Um, we're currently, Heidi and I are going through with three other couples uh, going through a DVD series called Marriage Matters. And... Uh, we're going to be gone this next week, so we actually looked at the next section ahead. So these, the three couples that are going with us, they don't know this stuff yet. They're going to find out this week. But I was really struck just, I, I was, again, we didn't plan, I didn't plan it this week, but I was really struck by how uh, in the last session, I talked about how the, the fact that uh, marriage is a covenant and not a contract. And maybe first start thinking about that and think, what's the difference or why, why is that necessary? And before I go on, I'm gonna, I was not going to spend as much time with the marriage part as the home part, so I'm sorry. Um, because I'm spending a little bit more time, but I, I think it's really important for us. There is a difference between viewing marriage as a covenant and not a contract. A contract is a bilateral agreement, and by that I mean two parties agree to each up holding up their end of the bargain, and if one of them doesn't, the contract's broken. You understand how that works, right? Like in the business world, we have all kinds of bilateral contracts. You say, I agree to do this and this and this and this, 
and you agree to do this and this and this and this. And the understanding is when one of us doesn't follow through on our agreements, that that nullifies the contract. A contract is also primarily driven by, on each party's side, by what they're going to get out of it. I will agree to enter into this contract because this is what I'm going to get out of it. This is, what, this is how it benefits me. I have a great concern. I had it before, but this put it into words that I have never been able to really put it into. But I have a great concern that far too many of us treat our marriages like contracts. We approach it that way. Here's my list of agreements. Here's your list of agreements, Heidi. And I'll keep doing mine as long as you keep doing yours. But when you don't do yours, then the contract's broken. Now I don't have to do mine anymore either. Or I come into it because of what I'm going to get out of it. And we talked about this after watching it that, I mean, just to be honest, when we got married, we both were coming into that marriage for what we were going to get out of it, for what it provided for us. Marriage isn't a contract. It's a covenant. A covenant is completely different. A covenant is a unilateral agreement, meaning I am making these covenants, these promises. I'm doing these things, and it doesn't depend on whether you do yours or not. Think of the covenant language in the Bible. Think of how God covenanted with the people of Israel. Think of how God made a new covenant with us. You see why I tell you marriage is to represent Jesus and the church, because it's to represent the covenant that God is making with us. And when we approach it like a contract, when we approach it for what I'm going to get out of it, when we approach it with when you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I don't have to anymore either, we completely destroy the covenanting God, the picture of the covenanting God that he has laid out for us in his word. Because God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm always there. The moment you're ready to turn around, I'm there. And I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Husbands and wives, are we prepared to recognize I don't know how you entered your marriage, but I can tell you, you probably made the vows, similar vows to what I did. And did you notice that in no one of those vows do you say, I will do these things as long as you're doing yours still too, right? You've made a covenant. You said, I will vow to do these things. I have to go on. Because of what I just told you I believe about marriage, it's the reason the next section on the home fits in right with it. Because when you get married, you typically now just established a home. Whether you think of it as a house, I don't, I'm not talking necessarily about a house physically, I'm talking about a home. I'm talking about a unit that used to be two people that now became one, and that's now a new unit, that's a home. You established a home. And we say in our statement of faith and practice that we believe the home is the primary place where biblical truth is taught and displayed. You probably have heard me say things like this before. You probably have thought these things yourself, but I will say it again this morning. It's really great that you want to come to church. I think you should come to church. I did a whole message on the local church, and you should be part of it. I think it's really great if you want to send your kids somewhere where they get a, a Christian education. I think it's great, either at home, at a Christian school, or you're at least involved, or you're at least, you know, you think about that. I don't think it has to happen that way. I think it's great when you make all kinds of other opportunities where your children can be engaged with things uh, that, that, that teach them. Like they go to Bible camp, perhaps, or they go to, you know, Bible school. They go to different things. Like, I think that's great. 
I don't think that's wrong at all. I think it's, it's helpful. I will not back away from the fact that this statement here says that we believe that the home is the primary place, the first place, the place of the first importance where the Bible is taught and displayed. And those two are both very key. Not just taught, but displayed. Both. I can tell you, and you already know this, but I can tell you, your children, our children, can receive hundreds of hours of incredibly good Bible education in Sunday school and hopefully across the pulpit here on Sunday mornings. Hundreds of hours. But if it is not happening in the home, they will have received thousands, if not millions of hours and minutes that go against that. We read this section from Ephesians chapter 5, and we focus, first of all, on how the picture that, that, that is shifting for us, that our marriages aren't really about us as much as they are about what God wants to show the rest of the world. But now when we come to what our home should look like, we continue to find exactly laid out for us. Again, I kind of, I kind of alluded to it. He, Paul is, not only is he saying, here's the greater picture, but here's, here's how to fulfill that. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives like Jesus did. And he goes on. Now, we could read, uh, I didn't read these, but if you go on in chapter 6, he says, children, when children come in the picture, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And one final inclusion for fathers specifically, fathers do do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. I didn't put this verse up there, but, but he's, he's saying this is, this is how it should be. Wives, uh, you should respect your husbands. Husbands, you should love your wives. And children, when you come on the scene, here's how you do it. This is what it looks like. This is the, the, the formula for what a home looks like that's based on a marriage that is painting the picture of Jesus and his church. By the way, in a really literal sense, can I just say, in a really literal sense, remember when, when God created male and female and he brought them together, and then what did he tell them? What's the very first command he gave them? Be fruitful and multiply and go subdue the earth. Now think about what I just told you about our marriage is a picture of Jesus and the church. Think about how that fits in. What does Jesus and the church want more than anything? Well, maybe not more than anything because they want the glory of God to be on display. But what, 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 what's the goal? What, what does God mandate the church with? To be fruitful and multiply, right? Jesus' last words, go and make disciples. Of all nations, it's the very same command. That's why they're laid over each other. Like That's why our marriages are that picture, because it's the heart of what God wants to do. He wants us to be fruitful and multiply. Now, again, I will tell you, we'll see a specific example. I believe it's why God is a big fan of, of families having children, because that's the first mission field. That's the first part of that. But that's just, that's just a type. That's not necessary. That's just a type of what he really wants to have happen with Jesus and the church. Anyway, let me keep going here. The foundation of our homes and what we think our homes should look like was laid long before the New Testament. I want to go back to those verses today. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Deuteronomy. We're going to work our way through a couple of uh, sections of Scripture here. Now, in Deuteronomy, it's an interesting book because Moses, by the time we get to the end of this, Moses is on his way out as leading the people of, of Israel. And so he spends a lot of time reminding them of things and, 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 and telling them about what God wants and requires of them. Very early on in Deuteronomy, in chapter 6, he's, uh, chapter 5 really, he's telling uh, them some, 
some of the commands that God has, and he ends it in chapter 6 by giving what we call the greatest commandment. This should sound familiar, by the way, at least vaguely, if you pay any kind of attention, because it's the same thing that I brought to us, uh, the same command that I brought to us at the beginning of the year for our focus for this year. We wa- I want us to come back to the basics of our relationship with God, and the first most important part of this is contained here in verse 4 of, of, of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You should love God with everything you have. That's the most basic thing I can give you. That's the most basic part of your relationship. That's, that's the thing I, could, I, I can stress more than, than, than anything else in, for you. You should love God with all you have. I'm a firm believer when you do that, by the way, lots of other things will work out for, in your life. It's kind of like Jesus saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added into you as well. And then Moses says these words. These words that I'm commanding to you today shall be on your heart. Talking to the adults. I just told you now, you could go back through it. You could, I mean, he just read through a whole bunch of lists. Here's things you should do. And most important, you should love God with all that you have. And he says, and these words should be on your heart today. But why? Why? Why was he so concerned? Why do you say, hey, make sure that this stuff that I'm telling you stays right here. It's, it's right here and, and, and it's always right there for you. Why? And the rest of the, of the chapter then explains or gives a foundation for what we today say is the purpose of a home that we believe is supposed to be the primary place that, that uh, the biblical truth is taught and displayed. Look at the very next words. The very next word. Actually, I'll have one of you read that. Uh, somebody read the very next words. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 7 to 9. I want to make sure you guys are tracking with me. I think it's healthy, good for us, to, for you guys to participate and read some of this. So somebody read out loud for us. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 7 to 9. Why are these words, the commands of God, always to be right here if we're adults, if we're moms and dads or adults? Why, sh- why should they always be right here? Somebody read 7 through 9. One more verse. We say that the home is the primary place where the Bible is taught and displayed because we believe that's what God told the people of Israel. These commands I give to you today, they should be on your heart. Why? So that you can teach them diligently to your children. So that in your home, they can be talked about. They can be, they can be evident. They can be part of your life no matter what you're doing. When you get up, when you lie down. When you go out, when you stay in. In fact, they should be visible. They should be, they should be attached to you in some way. They should be part of your house. And you live somewhere. Your dwelling place should have this stuff on it that reminds you and your children and anyone who comes in that this is what God wants. That this is who God wants us to be. That's where, that, that to me looks like that the Bible is being taught and displayed within the home, within the family. That's why we say we do. Let's keep reading some more verses. Let's, let's skip some out of here, uh, but let's keep on going down. Let's go a little longer section, so if somebody's ready to read a couple of verses here, uh, let's go down to verse 20. Verse 20 to 25. Let's read that section and see, continue this discussion about what we see is supposed to be happening in the home with families.
that will be our righteousness. By the way, this is kind of a rhetorical question, but moms and dads, have you ever like told one of your kids that, that like this is what we do, this is a rule we have in our house, and they ask you why? It's a rhetorical question, right? Have they ever not asked why? <laughs> That's probably the better question. Well, look, the answer's right here. Yes, this should be part of your daily life. You talk about what God wants from us. You talk about your rules and why we do the things the way we do. And when they ask why, what's the answer? What's the answer? What's the answer to why? We should know this, right? Why? When your children ask you why we do the things we do, what's, what's the answer? Because I told you so? Because we've always done it that way? Because that's what it did in my house when I grew up? Unfortunately, that's too far, far too many times that's the answers we give, isn't it? Why? Why do we do the things we do? What? Because the Lord commanded us. You know what? Did you hear? Where did, where did he start? Where did he start? Yeah, but where did, where, did he, where did Moses start to say the reason why is? Because God delivered us. Because God is our salvation. Because God set us free. Because we were in bondage. Because we used to do things not godly ways. But then God delivered us and brought us out with great signs and wonders. He brought us into this own place. And because God has done so much for us, we will follow his commands. That's very important, by the way. Because otherwise, and this is a particular stronghold in our culture. I'm just going to say this. Otherwise, if it's only because God commands us to, and that becomes a righteousness, it becomes a workspace salvation. It becomes, well, we do this so that God is pleased with us, and that makes us right with him. He didn't start there, did he? He said, God delivered us. God saved us. God brought us out. And because of how much he's done for us, we know that he is the supreme authority, and we want to give him all of our love and devotion, and we want to obey him. And when we do that, that's displaying our righteousness. That's displaying what's already happened inside of here, that we have become gods. I challenge, I've done this before, I challenge us moms and dads, can we tie the requirements and rules we have in our house back to God saved us from something, and this is why we follow God's rules. This is what God's rule is, and this is why we follow it. I think we ought to be able to. And I think you ought to be able to tell your children that. And I think you should tell your children those things. Now, we got to keep going. Ah, we got to keep going. Let's, let's jump over to chapter 7. Chapter 7, he keeps on talking about this, what's supposed to happen in the home, what's supposed to happen as you go. And he starts saying, when you go into the land, and you're going to drive these people out, and they're going to get dispossessed, and you're going to take over their spots. And then he says, somebody read chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, because we're going to keep picking apart all the things that God has in mind when he thinks about the home, about the Christian home, about the godly home. Let's, let's talk about the, uh, verse 2 to 4. Somebody read verse 2 to 4 from chapter 7. Just flip over to that, that next chapter there. I find it very interesting as God is talking to them and saying, as you're going to move in, you're going to establish homes in a different place. There's already people there. You're going to have to get rid of them. In fact, you should get rid of them completely. And what does he say? You should not make a covenant with them. For you have already made a covenant, right? To each other. But you've made a covenant with me. 
Make no covenant. And he goes right to the example of marriage. I find this fascinating. One of the first things he says is, don't let your children, your sons, marry wives from the other cultures, from the other countries, from those wicked, evil places. Don't let them do it, for they will lead them away from me and to serving other gods. And then my anger will be kindled. I see God placing a high priority. Now, by the way, again, we can say with a specific issue of actually marrying a non-Christian, which according to Scripture is clearly a no-no. But we can also see there's a broader scope there. We can back out. There's the, there's the example you give us. But there's a broader scope to that that says, in your homes, be very concerned about not making a covenant with things that are ungodly and not allowing your children to do those things to, that, was gonna, that are going to lead them away, that are going to lead them to places where they're not following me anymore. I can follow that up by just having read one more verse. Let's read the last verse of chapter 7, verse 26. Someone read that one. This is, this is just one verse. Somebody could, uh, read that out for us nice, loud, and clear. Here's a really quick, simple, logical uh, statement about what he just read. All the things that oppose God, what's going to happen to them? What will happen to all the things that oppose God? They will be destroyed. So if they're in your home, what does that mean? That your home will be destroyed with it. That's, that's literally, the, that's what you just read, Les. I see that God is very concerned with our homes, not only in speaking the good things, but in protecting from those things that would destroy, protecting from things that he calls an abomination. Now, this is a pretty high-level message still. I don't have time, nor did, was it my intention even, to, to, to give lots of specifics to that. I will tell you, you as followers of Jesus Christ have this access to this incredible thing called the Holy Spirit, and he should lead you in making these things. I want to tell you the things that I believe the Bible teaches about our homes, that I say we believe is true about our homes. And I want to ask you as moms and dads, as parents, as whoever's, as adults in, in those homes to do the difficult work of applying this to your family. And depending on what your experience has been or what you have been doing so far, it may be very difficult work indeed. Real quickly, I want to just walk through this. I appreciate your patience because... I'm going to kind of summarize some things we've talked about here. I believe that in the home, because we believe that our marriages are a picture of Jesus and the church, and we believe that they're here to, uh, to uh, make more disciples within our home and outside of our home, we believe, I believe that our homes, in our homes we should testify to what God has done. That's a primary thing over and over and over again. Mom, Dad, when's the last time that you gave a testimony of what God is doing in your life to your children before your children? that you shared perhaps the story of you coming to Christ with your children, or maybe something far more recent, hopefully some things that God is doing currently in your life. It was there over and over again. When you do these things, when you follow these rules, and your children, by their natural curiosity, will say, well, why do we do it this way? And you can say, aha, let me tell you about what God has done in my life, and because of who he is, this is why I do this. This is why we do it. I believe kind of going along with that, in our homes, the emphasis is that we pass along our faith. We are interested in not just us coming to faith in Christ. We are interested in our children coming to faith in Christ. And I would tell you, we are interested in our children's children becoming 
coming to faith in Christ. And we are very interested in that generation that comes beyond, for we can perhaps compel our own children to still conform and do what we want, but we have no reach on the next generation after that. So somehow we have to find a way to represent what God has done in our lives and how, what kind of majesty he has and what kind of right he has to, to dictate our lives by the lordship of Jesus Christ that compels beyond the generation that's right, right under me to the next one beyond that. Did you, do you understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense to you? I can give you a business example really well. If you're an entrepreneur and you start a business, it's very well known in the business world that as that transitions to the next generation, that's often very difficult. And many times by the third generation, it's completely lost. There's all kinds of, of dynamics behind there. I don't have time to get into it this morning. But I can tell you the same dynamics exist in our spiritual heritage. When we are on fire for God and things are happening in our lives and we love it and it's doing great work in us, we must always be concerned that not only are we bringing our children or the next generation with us, but that this somehow reaches beyond them. For we know we have found true, lasting, successful follower of Jesus Christ when it goes into that third generation. It endures. It goes beyond and I'm going to tell you a lot of that rests on if our children know the real reasons why we do what we do and not just, hey, that's because that's what we do. I can tell you from experience, from my own culture, from where we're at, that that will not end very well because the next generations will not be serving the Lord. They may still be conformed outwardly, but they won't be serving the Lord. I believe that the home, because of what we believe should be, coming, should be taught by our home, that our home is the place where we demonstrate obedience to God. We show the world this is what it looks like. Do you know, you probably do know this, by the way, but do you know in your home, the people that you live with day in and day out is the greatest opportunity to demonstrate how you live at peace and how you forgive people and how you have to work with people and how you have to love people and serve people that you often don't really like that much because you live with them and they get on your nerves, and they bug you. And they don't always do that back to you what you wish they would do to you. I can think of no greater place or opportunity we have to demonstrate how all-encompassing and how life-changing the love of Christ inside of us is than in our homes. And I believe, as I said in the final one, that I think that our homes are to protect us from things protect our family from things that destroy, to demonstrate how critical it is that we separate ourselves. We don't make covenants with things that are an abomination. Now, I want to get to this, and I'm sorry that it's taken me so long to get here, but I want to get to this because if after a message like this, <laughs> if you're like me and you say, here's the ideal that God has painted in his word, but I know what my life looks like, I know what my marriage looks like, I know what my home looks like, and many times it doesn't look anything like what you just painted for us this morning, Merlin. In the middle of the things that I, we talked to, we're still in Deuteronomy, hopefully you still have Deuteronomy open. In the middle of all those things that, that Moses was saying to the people, and he's talking about going into this land and establishing these homes that are centered around the covenant they have with God and, and destroying everything else and not allowing other influence and not being led away and knowing that everywhere you go and everything you do, you, you talk about what God has done in your life and you say, we're gonna do God's commands because of what he's done for us. All, in the middle of all that, and then he says this, and this probably hits us right where we're at today. If, verse 17 of chapter 7, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? 
You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread for them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Let me encourage you this morning as we close. If you have looked at what, or if you've heard what I've said today, and you've said, that is a mountain I cannot climb. That is a land I cannot go into and dispossess the people that are there. That is a, that is a picture that is far too lofty for me to ever attain. May I remind you this morning, as Moses did, when you get to that place of fear, and of thinking, I don't think this is going to be possible with my family. We're just too big of mess-ups. To remember what God has done. For them, he pointed them back to Egypt. For you, I would point you back. Has God delivered you from anything? Has God brought you into any place of freedom? Has God taught you anything? Has God moved anything in your life and shown himself to be faithful? Then think of those things. Look at what he says. Don't be in dread of them, but for the Lord your God is in your midst. God is in your home. He is interested in your family and your marriage. He is interested in that. God is in your midst, and he is a great and awesome God. You see, the choice, the solution is not for you to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, for you to look inside of yourself and find the answer, for you to try harder, for you to do better. The solution is to remember that God is a great and awesome God. You know, every time that we look at how big the problems are and how little we are, and that's what we're focused on, it's impossible. But every time we let ourselves think about how amazing God is and how great he is, those problems don't get any smaller, do they? But a matter of perspective does take place that we realize how great God is. For truly, as his servant Mary said, nothing will be impossible with God. Now, it's an entirely different question or problem if the picture I painted this morning is not what you want. God, as we close, perhaps just leaving it right there where we ended, perhaps the first first thing we get to that we can't get around is answering that question. Do I desire for my marriage, if I'm in one, or if I hope to have one, do I desire for that to be far more about what, what picture it paints about Jesus and the church than about what I'm getting out of it? To be far more about how I can love my wife, or to be far more about how I can respect my husband, than anything they're going to give back to me. To be far more concerned that my home is a place that displays the kingdom of God, the reality of a changed life, of surrender to Jesus, of the fruits of the Spirit, of a holy devotion and obedience to the commands of God. Not to be right with you, God, but because we are right with you, because of what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. Is that what I want? 
And then if we're here this morning and we say, yes, that's what I want, but it looks so impossible, God, then that is exactly why you took my mind to those verses. You drew me back. I jumped over them. You drew me back to those verses to remind us today that if that's what we're after, to remember who you are and how great you are and the great things you've done on our behalf and on behalf of millions of people throughout the the echoes of time, and you are still a great and awesome God, and you are still concerned about our homes and our marriages and our families representing you well, showing the rest of the world, not just within our family, but outside of our family, what it looks like, what it, what, what, who you are and what you've done for us and how the church is to respond and what that relationship looks like, the beauty of having the principles of the Word of God applied to our lives, the joy of that, the peace in that. Strengthen our hearts, God. Strengthen our resolve. Make strong those weak knees. Help us to lift those feeble hands. That we would not weary in doing good, knowing in due time we'll reap the harvest as it applies to our marriage, our family, our home. Remind us, in a world of selfishness, in a humanity, in my own body of selfishness, remind us that we exist for a far greater purpose. Not for our benefit or glory, but for you, God, your benefit and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for your good patience today. I ran past my normal time. Why don't you stand?